that's like, wait, what? No, that's not how it works. Oh. We grill you and then you we... leave. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> America's premier tech education podcast. My name is Brian Gates. And I'm Ben Golke. This week we're continuing our series of what to do to get your first tech job. And this week I believe we're up to the interview process. Is that right, Ben? Yes, interviewing, which is a can be a huge topic unto itself. We probably could do an entire series on, on just interviewing. Um, there's tons of advice and, and all kinds of columns and articles out in, on the internet that gives you, you know, the best advice for getting past your technical interview. I think what we're going to do today is sort of share our stories of how we have experienced interviews, both maybe being the one interviewed and also perhaps the one doing the interviewing, um, and just kind of share what we've learned and, and uh, maybe provide some best practices after that. So maybe start with you, Brian. How has uh, how the interviewing process gone for you? We've, we've covered in previous episodes that, you know, both of us have had quite a few jobs in our career, so I'm sure you've had plenty of opportunities to interview. Um, how has that gone for you, and what would you, uh, you know, how would you rate that experience? I'd say I, I've had some great and some less than great. The, <laughs> the best ones, I think, were where there was... Um, an assumption of competence on the way in. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that tends to happen later in one's career. So uh, interviews where I wasn't sort of blindsided by all of the esoteric trivia that exists purely for the sake of being asked about during interviews. And I was able to talk about uh, projects I had worked on and what would I do in the new project and stuff like that. Those have been the good ones. What about you? Have you had um, equal positive uh, experiences? Yeah, I would say for sure that it's when um, there is an assumption of competence. And also, I think when there's been some research done. So when By the I'm company. going in. Right. So when I'm going into an interview and the person has, I don't know, actually read my resume <laughs> or perhaps looked at my website or, uh, you know, looked at my GitHub profile to see what I've worked on and kind of, you know, taken a few minutes to understand me as a person and as a, um, you know, as a tech professional, that has done wonders to help the interview process because it allows us to have a conversation about my experience and about my knowledge rather than sort of, we're going to, you know, cop show style, put you under a hot light and grill you <laughs> about your stuff because we don't, we don't previously, we didn't previously do any research to, to learn about it. So we're kind of going to learn about it firsthand um, for the first time from you. That's always a strong opening statement, isn't it? When someone comes in and says, please tell me about yourself because... To be frank, I haven't looked at anything about you whatsoever. Right. I barely know your name. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely the case. Uh, you know, I definitely agree that that uh, having that little bit of um, knowledge first gives you, puts you more on an equal footing. Um, certainly, if you are being interviewed, you want to do what you can to, to research the company so that you can also go in and be knowledgeable about who they are and what they do and that kind of thing. Um, so you want to ideally go in where each of you have done some work, some some pre-work to kind of figure out what each other's deal is. And then you can have more of a conversation rather than the typical you go in, you're really nervous. You don't really know what's going on. They don't really know what's going on. And then they just start, they open your resume, just start grilling you about things that are on there. Uh, that definitely puts you on, you know, a, a kind of a bad footing because 
then you you immediately sort of go to the defensive, right? Where you are like, I now have to defend my resume and I have to defend my experience because someone's sort of professionally attacking me. Um, and that's just not a good way to go. So hopefully you can end up with opportunities to interview where that's not the case, where they've done some research and you can have a conversation. To call back to a previous episode, I made the point before that it's probably not worth spending an countless hours on perfecting your resume because people might be looking at it at for five or 10 seconds. And as we just said, sometimes that's an upper bound because you can have decision makers who have literally never seen your resume until they're talking to you, at which point it's less interesting to them than you are. So they, they have it in front of them and they have maybe, you know, 10 seconds to look at it before you walk in the door because they're like, oh, hey, we're interviewing this guy today at 10. For, sorry, we forgot to tell you about it, but please come to this meeting room. Right. <laughs> they hand you, they hand that person a resume and you're like trying to scan it as you're walking to the conference room. And then you sit down and it's like, well, whatever was in here is not that relevant anymore because I have, you know, I have the source in front right, of me. I can I just ask person. them. Right. And that, that tends to be, for me, that was probably uh, has been the worst part about interviews um, is that because there appears to be so little research on the part of the company and the employees beforehand, in particular, if you end up in a multi-part interview, which for whatever reason has been very popular with <laughs> in yeah. my career, where when I go to interview, I end up um, talking to, let's say, three or four different either people or maybe even groups of people. Um, so I sit in a room and somebody, you know, one or more people come walking in, sit down. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm blah, 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 blah. And then they, they start, they kind of explain themselves a little bit. And then they ask you, so, you know, what have you done? What's your experience? What's the, you know, and they kind of give you the standard questions. Okay, great. We answer some questions. Awesome. This interview is over. They stand up and leave. Another group of people come in. Hi, I'm whoever, and I'm here's my deal, and this is what I do with the company. Hey, how you know what have you done in your career? And it's like we just it's did kind this. of speed dating. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is like speed dating, and, and it's and it's like we just did this. I I just explained all of this to them mm-hmm. ten minutes ago. Why am I explaining it again? Not to mention the fact that I'm basically just regurgitating what's on my resume, which if you had read it in the first place, you would, you know, you would know these answers, but. But it's just very strange that that seems to be the standard formula where I guess they want to get different perspectives. So they ask different groups of people to interview you separately so they can sort of not be tainted by each other's opinions. And you can kind of, you know, sit there and get your own – you get your own 30 minutes with the person. Um, but but on the other end of the, of the table, it ends up being very, you know, disjointed and repetitive. Um, so – you know, has that been your experience, the kind of the multi-part thing? That's been, for some reason, very popular in in the companies that I've interviewed at. Yeah, I've had that experience before I got into software as well as in the software field. Back when I was a, um, a biochemical engineer, I remember having interviews like that where beyond the pressure of having the multiple similar um interview experiences, I was also wearing a suit, which thank goodness you don't have to do in this line <laughs> right. of work uh, almost ever. Yeah. So it must, it must be, there must be some handbook somewhere that everyone is reading yes. from, <laughs> no matter the industry in there, just like, this is how you do interviews. Uh, so I, I, as far as better experiences, um, I can say it's certainly a highlight for me was um, the Iron Yard, which is the job that we both had before our current jobs. Um and that was interesting because, for one, they actually didn't see my resume until probably towards the very end of the process. Right. 
they were like, oh, right, we should probably look at your resume. Can you send it to us? <laughs> and so I did. Um, but they, you know, it was based on a recommendation from someone else is kind of how I got in touch with them. And then the the proving that you, you know, can sort of walk the walk process was much less, let's look at your at your body of work on the internet or in your resume and instead let's have a conversation about what you've done and then let's have you kind of prove your bona fides by doing things like I actually prepared a um, an outline uh, a curriculum outline of what I would want to teach for an iOS class uh, so I kind of turned did work on that and then turned that in um, and then I also did a guest lecture, which I'm, which I'm fairly certain you did one as well, where you have to go in and, and go to a current, a current crop of students and actually give them about an hour's worth of, uh, you know, instruction, um, again, to kind of prove that, you know, you can stand in front of a crowd of people and you can explain something to them and answer questions and you can do the work of being an instructor. Um, and, and that I found to be definitely a highlight for me because they were asking me to do what I'm going to do for them as a job. And, and they, it wasn't a hypothetical. It wasn't a whiteboard. It was, here's some students come in at this time prepared and, and get, be ready to teach them a new thing they don't know already and then be prepared to respond to their questions and concerns and, and whatever. Um, and hopefully you leave them with more knowledge and skill than they had when you walked in and you know certainly it was definitely the case that I left with more knowledge and skill because I got an hour of being able to practice that that process of teaching and I really wish that more interviews were like that where it's like more of a direct application of here this is the thing we're going to have you do for real so why don't we just test you with that thing right I think that's the the key part of it is that the interview ought to as much as possible mirror what the job is going to be because that's the whole point of the interview is to find out how will this person perform at the job so have the person perform at an activity that is job like instead of something that has some level of connection to it at, at a few removes so maybe for, for our listeners who perhaps haven't gone through kind of the standard programmer's technical interview before, um, could you walk us through just real quick kind of how it normally is? This is definitely not maybe the optimal, but this is unfortunately kind of how it actually plays out. If I had to say what the standard process looks like, it's usually first there's a phone screen with HR where... Uh, technical buzzwords will be mentioned, but they don't really have to be explained to any depth. The person on the other end of the phone will say, do you know JavaScript and React and CSS and a couple other things? And you say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or they will ask you, tell us buzzwords, and you say JavaScript, CSS, React, and a couple other things. And it's really not any deeper than that. Um, and the, I think the purpose of that first screen is just to establish that this is a person who can speak words in response to spoken words. And they sound vaguely technical, they, right? Yeah, they sound vaguely technical, and that's enough to get past that. And then uh, typically either an in-person or a technical um, phone call will be scheduled, usually depending on how close the employer is to where you are. And that is often uh, the multi-part process that Ben and I had been talking about where you might have uh, a visit with two or three different technical leads or architects or team members or um, generally people who are going to be involved in the decision-making process about who is who gets the job 
Some of those questions will be the tell us about yourself, regurgitate your resume stuff. Some of them may be um, tell us about things you've worked on in the past and get into a little more technical depth. Uh, there may also be kind of the rapid fire tech questions of the, the sort of things that you'll find just Googling for interview questions. Um, that's where the dreaded whiteboarding can possibly make an appearance. And then in better situations, uh, a bit of pair programming, which is, again, closest to what you're going to be doing on the job, not necessarily the pairing aspect, but writing code, dealing with code, and, and talking about dealing with code. And that might go on for, um, I'd say, three to five um, people is, is standard, usually one at a time for half an hour to an hour apiece. Um, maybe with a meal thrown in to, uh, to give you a chance to, uh, engage with people in a not purely formal work context. Although you should be aware if that happens, that that is still a part of the interview. Right. Yeah. They're grading you, even if you're just having a sandwich. Absolutely. And, um, often rounding up with, uh, a talk from somebody from HR, which again is part of the interview, although it, it because it's less technical, it often doesn't feel that way. And uh, then a handshake and a will be in contact, will let you know. And almost always there's there's that kind of barrage of things, and then either there's an offer or there's not. At least in my experience. Right. Sometimes there's also a uh, a brief discussion with some higher up person. So perhaps like the the boss of the person that would actually be your boss or I've, I've had that too, where like you're like, oh, I'm meeting with the director. And it's like this person isn't, isn't going to even be my boss. It's just somebody that wanted five minutes with me. You know, sometimes it's even the CEO if the company's small enough. Um, but yeah, there's usually a couple different levels of people that you talk to. And I found mostly the HR part tends to be more of an explanation than it is like an interview in the sense that the HR person's role there is to maybe perhaps ask you some questions that are more soft skill based. But frequently it's like, here's what our benefit package looks like. Here's what our health insurance looks like. Here's just to kind of explain to you what it is they're offering so that when they do, if they do come and give you an actual offer, typically the offer is pretty plain in the sense it's like, we would like to offer you a job as this title with this money. And they don't really go into a lot of the sort of benefit part of it. Because um, that's so, front loaded in the... Yeah, because they already told you about that in the in the interview, right? So, um, but yeah, that, that what you just described is basically almost every interview I've ever been <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sometimes it's, it's longer, sometimes it's shorter, sometimes there's multiple... You know, there's actually multiple times where you go in and talk to them. Um, what would you say is has been your? Can you think of like the worst interview you've ever been on? Oh, before I get to the worst, I should also throw in a, a practice that I think I'm generally in favor of is the idea of the coding test or project that comes mm -hmm. uh, often in between the phone, the HR phone screen, and the in-person stuff, which I like because that gives me as the candidate a chance to work through problems in exactly the environment that I'm most comfortable with. I can use the, the software tools. I can use my own computer. I can use my own environment. Uh, I don't have someone looking over my shoulder, which makes things much more stressful. As long as that, as long as the situation is not like here, let's go into this web application that's a really artificial environment, and you have to code in this little box, and it's going to grade you on. Like sometimes it gets to be very 
artificial. Um, kind of like if you've taken a test, uh, you know, if you've, let's say, you're in a traditional school and you've taken a test online to perhaps skip taking a class or something they sometimes they can those think those environments can be very very artificial because they're trying to constrain you for purposes of you know Preventing grading and cheating or yeah, yeah right and so it can be and in particular talking about programming it can be very hard to navigate that because it's not a matter of just how do i do x y or z in this language it's like okay how do i make the machine understand that I know what I'm talking about. Right. I, I think I've completed the problem, but where's the submit button to send right. it into the web application? And meanwhile, the right. clock is ticking down and, oh, it's flashing right. red now and I'm oh, almost out of Oh, there's been an mobile. error. I, yeah, right, yeah. Sure. True. So with the caveat that the, the best sort of coding test slash projects are things where someone will send you a link to a, a GitHub repo and say, clone this. Uh, read the readme, do what the readme says, and send it back to us in a few days. Issue a pull request or something, right? Because right. then you, you are doing exactly, exactly what you would be doing in the real context. Before we got into that little digression, you would ask, well, what's the worst interview experience I've had? And um, You don't have to name any names, of course. But... Sure. I think uh, a couple strike out to me. One is just bad and the other as bizarre. Um, well, no, I'll, I'll bump it up to three. One of them was exactly what you were talking about with the very artificial, um, environment. It was back in the dark days when I was kind of trawling around the guru.com and that sort of site looking for just anything that was a paid software gig and could be, you know, $10 an hour. And I'm competing against people from parts of the world where $10 an hour is a living wage. And um, it, to this day, I don't understand what the environment was or what buttons I was supposed to click. And, and that was just terrible. Uh, a second one I remember was a phone screen that was, I think there was some screen sharing software involved where the person could see what I was typing. And the, the problems were just so strangely phrased. I was supposed to figure out how to... Uh, structure a database query to get things within a few miles of a zip code with the unspoken assumption by the interview that um, zip codes were uh, circular <laughs> so that you could say where things were just because you would get like a center of the zip code and then say anything within some number of miles of that point is close enough to the zip code, which if you've ever looked at a map is not how those things work at all. No, no. And I was trying to figure out the actual problem instead of getting to the simplified version of the problem that the interviewer wanted me to get to. So that was unpleasant. Uh, and then another one I had, it was for a, a Ruby on Rails job. And the question was, it was a single question, and we spent, I think, two hours on a Skype call talking about it. If you had to design the entire software delivery system for Obamacare, what would that look like? <laughs> right. If you can see the horrified shock and grin on Ben's face right now, the stupefaction, that's exactly what I felt because I had, I had no idea. I still have no idea. Nor do I understand the relevance of that question to 
build a, a software system for perhaps hundreds of users. I mean that doesn't that the scope of that is so wide that it is, it is completely laughable to to even suggest that as a question for purposes of an interview. Right. I mean, that, that, the bounds on that are so high that like it would take you two hours just to ask questions uh, about of that person yeah. to create bounds for that so that you could perhaps get it in your head and try and tackle it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think certainly those, really, all three of those experiences kind of go back to. Um, the idea that the companies that we're talking about that are doing the hiring are just not doing their job when it comes to trying to figure out an appropriate way to assess an applicant for a job. They just they've not thought about it, so they're so the the questions they're asking are very kind of last minute and haphazard, or they've designed a system to prevent cheating, but then it ends up in a scenario where you literally can't submit your <laughs> your work because you don't know how to use the system because it's so convoluted. Um, and that's just that's that's the problem is that these companies just you'd think that they're so concerned about hiring the right person and they're so worried about oh if we hire this person and they don't work out then we spend all this time and energy and money you know doing this work to try and get this person in and then they 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 are no good and we have to fire them in 3 weeks it's like yeah but i mean if you but if you end up in a scenario where you are doing such a poor job of doing the assessment itself of course you're going to end up in a in a place where People, you're going to hire the wrong people, and you're going to end up in in a you know. Oh, we have to fire this person now. It's like, well, yeah, because you did a terrible job of assessing them, and you know that's space. I consider that to be their fault, really. Like, you know, it's on them. They're the ones hiring and doing the giving you the money. So, um, so what? Maybe we could think about some ways. Uh, perhaps talk about if we've done interviewing in the past ourselves for you know for positions, right? You know, meaning that we were the interviewer. Um, kind of how we would approach it or how we did approach it, um, and then maybe provide some best practices to our listeners um, to to try and cut through some of this and and you know create a meaningful impact on that company when you go in and you interview. I think for both of us, the most common um, interview situation where we were on the other side of the table, so to speak, was when we were interviewing incoming students for the Iron Yard. And that's an un unusual situation in that we really didn't expect any technical proficiency. Uh, we were gauging other things, which probably are more important in a lot of different uh, interview situations than people give them credit for. Um, things around uh, how does this person respond to a bit of challenge? How um, effective is this person at communicating about technology? Um, without any kind of expectation that someone is going to even understand how to open a command line program, which is a you know fairly basic thing. Something that I think we probably worked our way towards and didn't understand at, at the outset and probably didn't understand for a long time is uh, how much the fact of interviewing makes things harder for people. I was listening to a podcast actually just this morning from um, one of the guys who hosts the Soft Skills Engineering podcast. I forget okay. his name. He's on the Alexa team for Amazon, so he mm. he's fairly technologically proficient and has uh -huh. interviewed yeah. an awful lot of people. And he took to Twitter to ask his followers um, the interview question that I guess he had had and worked with for a little bit was, uh, how would you write some code to take a list of strings and pick out the most common ones. 
And his question was basically, how difficult would you rate this problem? And people start out saying, well, I don't know, that sounds like kind of a two or a three, depending on a few things. And then someone said, well, wait a minute, is this an interview question? Because that spikes it up to 10 right away. <laughs> right. If it's because if it's the normal work day and you're just kind of doing your job and there's always some pressure to get things done, but there's not the the specter of I will be without income for the next weeks or months unless I can do this particular task. Plus, we, no one's breathing down your neck. Yeah, no you one have is, access is to Google. Looking at you know. me while I'm trying to do this. Right. Thinking less of me if I type a word wrong. or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. You if have books it, and Google and other coworkers to ask questions yes, of. Yes. All of these things make such a huge difference. And it was, um, it was, I think, worthwhile for me, valuable for me, especially with this um, podcast coming up, to hear somebody who has a lot more interviewing experience than I do, um, give the reminder that, yeah, it, the fact of interviewing makes the person being interviewed less capable. <laughs> right, it's like the Jeopardy effect, right? You're like, oh, I could answer these questions. Right, no right, Why'd right. Why did you get that wrong? Because you're sitting in your, on your couch at home, right? But if you were standing next to Alex Trebek with the buzzer and studio lights and an oh, audience terrifying. and the cameras. And I've done like, it. I, it's terrifying. Yeah, I didn't actually get on the show, but I did get into no. the Jeopardy studio, and I held the you, clicker, and yeah, that makes uh -huh. it harder. That does make yeah. it harder. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that's very true, that, that, that just the fact that you are sitting in that seat and you have people looking at you and you're trying to – I mean, anytime that you're performing, right, you're basically – you're exercising a skill that you have in front of other people. It can be, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with that, it can be very, um, you know, very nerve wracking. So it, it's, it's not at all surprising that whether that be because you're trying to do a particular dance or you're playing an instrument or something, or you're trying to sit here and explain some technical piece of, of jargon that can be difficult. Um, so we, I think we've talked a lot about um, interviewing worst practices from the side of the interviewer, but <laughs> we we should give people some ammunition about how to defend themselves and get into the interviewing best practices. And I think the one overarching thing is to make them play your game. And what yes. I mean by that is they're going to have the, these set of tasks that look like you need to fit into this little box and they ask a question and you're supposed to answer exactly that question and they have a, a coding test and you have to write the code in their environment of choice to solve it. And that's playing their game. The way to play your game is to do things like if they ask you a question and you don't have the answer, say that you don't have the answer, which feels very counterintuitive yes. to people. Don't try to make stuff up. That's the worst thing you can do. Ask for more information about the question or about the topic or ask whether the thing they're asking about is similar to another thing that you know. Maybe they're asking, how would you do, um, how would you reduce an array in JavaScript? Maybe you don't know that method very well. So you could ask, is that similar to mapping and filtering, which I've worked with before? Uh, they might ask, uh, how would you... Um, how would you hide an element with JavaScript? You could say, well, I don't exactly know how to do that, but there are ways with CSS. Could I use a CSS class to do that kind of thing? 
So always try to steer things back to things that you know about while acknowledging the stuff that you don't know about. Don't try to make up uh, your areas of expertise. Acknowledge if they ask something and you don't know what they're talking about, say, I, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. And then ask them to explain it because that will show that you're interested in things you want to learn. And it might be that they're just using an unfamiliar term for something that you do actually know. Yeah, they're just referring to it in a way that you just haven't heard before. And so therefore it seems foreign, even though the underlying concept is something that you've maybe worked with before. It's definitely true that that BSing your way through an answer is going to be caught pretty quickly. Um, and and you will lose a lot of credibility when you do that. I've, I've interviewed people who I've asked questions of, and I can tell that, they're, that they don't know. But rather than doing what you suggest, where you just sort of admit that you don't know and maybe perhaps try and reframe it or slightly move the conversation to something they do understand they just try and think though they think well i have to answer this question so therefore i have to gotta give them something so i'm gonna just gonna make something up and make it sound jargony and hopefully they'll let it slide right and it's like that won't no that that's won't another work. funny story from uh, from this amazon guy that i was listening to a little while ago he said he was in a boot camp kind of situation and i guess brought in to give mock interviews and pulled somebody up out of the class to give that pressure element because you're performing in front of your peers and started asking him some questions and he asked something and the guy clearly didn't know and tried to BS his way through it. And this engineer stopped and said, I can tell you don't know. Please just acknowledge that when it happens. So we asked another couple of questions and the guy got into the same situation and tried to make stuff up again. And the engineer cut him off and said, wait, you're doing it again. And the guy said, I'm sorry, my previous career was in PR. This is what we do. We always have <laughs> we to We lie for a living. <laughs> spew. We lie for a living, yeah. So it's difficult to break that habit. But in software, I don't know is a perfectly valid thing to say. Yes. It can't in be fact, the only thing to say. But no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a valid once in a while thing to say. Right, and you can't say I don't know, and then just stop talking. That that doesn't <laughs> right. Because, that's also bad <laughs> because it doesn't it doesn't give us any kind of indication on the other side of the table of what you do know, right? So, um, but I think that the the biggest thing that you can do is, like Brian said, kind of make always be shifting the conversation back to the game that you're playing, not the game that they're playing. Because if you play their game, unless you're really really good at it, you're not going to look as good as you could. Um, and the whole point of an interview is simply to not lie, of course, but is simply to present your best self, right? Present your best, the, the, the strongest engineer that you possibly can be is the, is the engineer that you want to be when you're in the interviewing process. And I would much rather have a candidate come into my conference room if I'm the one doing the interview, sit down, we start talking at, and asking questions. And if I ask a question that they either have not heard that term before, or they just don't, they're not unfamiliar with the concept, or they've not used that method before, they, they just admit it. And then they immediately pivot to something that they think might still fulfill the requirements of the question, but is something that they understand because that's what they're going to do in the job, right? Like you're not going to know everything. You're not going to know how to do every single thing. So, but the work needs to get done. And so you might then, okay, well, you want me to do it this way. I don't really know that. So either I can go learn it or I could, I could attempt to try and, you know, solve it the way that I know how. And in the end, really, as long as the work gets done and it is 
quality and 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 in the end that product works it doesn't really matter the intricacies of how it's put together um, and a lot of developers get we get very territorial about kind of the ways that we do things um, and we might have a certain methodology or a certain um, just kind of you know practice around how we solve a problem and they're not always the same practices right brian probably solves problems you know technically speaking with code differently than i do and that's okay that's fine um so you want to show that sort of heterogeneous uh, you know um set of ideas in the interview you want to show i don't know everything and i don't um I don't know exactly how you code, but I, I'm going to show you how I code through, you know, answering the questions in the way that I think are best. Um, and you really don't need to follow the script. It feels very, especially if you read a lot of like interviewing best practices things, is that it is that it's almost like they want you to memorize answers to things, and then that way, if that question gets asked, you can just snap and spit out this answer i know um, exactly how many marbles will fit into a school bus no that's right. not the point right that's not the point that those questions are not just i mean hopefully those questions are not designed to be answered literally necessarily because they're looking for a correct answer and that's it they want to see how you think so you you you're not nearly as constrained by those questions as you think you are um and like brian was saying you can reformulate that question into something that you know you can answer and that's totally fine there are several ways you can go about that if you imagine yourself in a situation where you've been asked to perform some coding task hopefully it's while you're pair programming um, less ideally it's at a whiteboard but either way it's something that you know that you know but at that moment with the spotlight on you you're blanking that's happened to me i'm sure it's happened in ben it, it happens to people mm -hmm. who are interviewing the worst thing you can do, well, I guess the worst thing you could do is like burst into tears and run out of the room and never talk to anyone. The equally bad is to just stand frozen and not say anything because then the interviewer doesn't know exactly what problem you're having, whether it's you honestly just don't know anything about this technology or are you freezing up because of the pressure. So a better thing to do than freezing up is to say, you know, I know I know this. I think I'm freezing up because of the pressure. Um, and then start a dialogue with the interviewer about how to get around your pressure-induced block. You can say things like, I think I solved a problem a lot like this in one of my earlier projects. Could I show you that code and talk you through it? Or... Is it okay if I go on Stack Overflow to look for the general kind of, not for the answer, but to look for how to do this kind of thing or to look for the method name I'm forgetting? Or could you just tell me the one thing, you know, get me over this hump? Or how would you go about starting this? Any of those are better than just sitting because they give the interviewer more information yeah, if you don't say anything, then they don't know what you do know and what you don't know. So you're not giving them any context. And so they're basically going to assume the worst at that point. <laughs> they're going to be like, well, this person is clueless, um, not hiring this person, right? So you, you don't want to let them make their own conclusions about you. You want to make sure that you are presenting all the information you can, even if that means you're going to stand there and admit that you don't know what, what this thing is. That's better than, like Brian said, than just standing there and saying nothing.
And frankly, that as a junior, that's an important part of the job is yeah. formulating your explanation of why you don't know how to do something. And I don't right. mean that as like butt covering kind of generating excuses, but to, to say, I got myself into this situation and I'm seeing X when I expected to see Y and I'm not sure what's going on. Uh, which of these three things do you think I ought to do next? That's an important skill as a junior or someone just new to a code base. And if you can get that in the interview, then so much the better. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's it's on juniors to make this happen. But I do think that the culture that we've created in the tech industry of software development is that we are increasingly expecting juniors to simply know everything and be able to do the job completely with no help. And that, you know, I mean, you look at junior positions and they say, you know, some say three to five years of experience. And it's like, what are you insane? <laughs> that is not a junior position. That's but, a junior but that's, position if you're achieving sushi mastery and it's going to be 50 years till you can open your own place. Right, right. That's a junior, but otherwise, otherwise not. So uh, it's, I think it is an important thing to to continually do to, to challenge this this hierarchy or this this process that we've created either through action or inaction, <laughs> but this process that exists um, needs to be changed because we are never going to get quality junior developers if we expect them to answer every single question perfectly on a whiteboard and and we expect them not to ask any questions about those questions right we don't we don't we don't want follow-ups we just want you to answer the question and that's not cool that's not that's not how software development actually works it's a collaborative effort and it's it's a constant um reshaping of the requirements and the constraints so that you get to in the end you get to the product that everyone wants so I would I would challenge anyone who's listening who's who's has been will you know is going on or will go on in a technical interview whether you're a junior or not to to constantly question the process obviously in a professional way you don't want to be you know annoying about it but but basically ask follow-up questions to questions that are asked of you technical problems and stuff they're trying to present to you ask for clarification ask for con additional constraints if you feel like the the problem is too unbounded um you know, challenge this process again in a professional way as much as you can, because the only way we're going to fix this problem is if the people that are being interviewed push back on some of the silly practices that happen and try and get the people that are doing the interviewing to understand that this is supposed to be a two-way street <laughs> and, and that, and that you need, to, you know, we, we can't, we're not going to get quality with the process we have. So something that I do um, that I've started doing probably in the last, I don't know, three or four years is I prepare a long list of questions to ask whoever I end up talking to. So whether it be HR or I actually, I have questions that are HR focused. I have questions that are technically focused. I have questions that are focused towards maybe the person that's leading the team. I have questions that I ask the CEO if I happen to talk to that person. Um, and they're all kind of different, you know, different levels and different genres of questions. They they cover different things. But I have probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 questions kind of at the ready that are on my iPad that I bring with me when I go into the interview. Um, and I every group that I talk to, I make sure when the interview begins that I say, I have questions that I want to ask you. Can we make sure that either I get to put those in the middle or we have extra time at the end? 
you know, at the end of the session to talk about them. Um, but I make it clear that I have, and they're often like, oh, well, if you have questions, we can ask them at the, at the end. You can ask them at the end, right? Which I think that's mostly a formality. I don't think a lot of people actually ask that many questions. So that's just like, well, if you happen to have questions, we can, we'll throw them at the end. But I make sure that I tell them, no, no, I really do have several questions I want to ask you. Please make sure that we have enough time for that. Um, and, and I frequently ask, I ask all kinds of stuff. So I ask things about build processes and what kind of source control they use and how their development process works and what software they use to track that and how many meetings they have. And I just go into all kinds of different things. And, you know, some of that stuff I can get just through talking to them. I don't have to ask them that question particularly. Um, but if this information is not conveyed, I make sure that I ask it at some point because it shows, for one thing, that I am interested in understanding more about the actual inner workings of their company, and I and I am concerned about my work environment and what it's going to be like to actually work there. Um, and I think it and it, it frequently startles them. Like I'm I'm not yeah. kidding when I say that they are sort of deer in the headlights, struck with, oh wait, you have actual questions that are not just banal you know small talk you have like real meaty questions about the build process and how we manage meetings and you know all that stuff it's like yeah how many you know what is the work environment like how many days like what's the what's the vacation policy do do you get pressured not to take vacation if you have an unlimited one for example um you can really kind of go into any area that you want and just probe them with with all these different questions about the more specific the better yeah. Like I think to to say what's the vacation policy might be less useful than how much vacation did you take last year? Because you can hear a lot of we have an unlimited vacation policy, but the other question might get I took half a day. Yeah, because because saying, oh, we, we get two weeks a year or oh, we have unlimited or whatever, that's just the policy. Right. But what how does it actually work? How many people actually take time off and how much time do they take at a time? Right. If it's unlimited and oh, we, we take about it, we take about like one day every six months. It's like, well, OK, so that's not very that perk isn't very exciting if if the reality is that you get two days off a year. So um, and, and and I'm using we're using that example in particular, but but. Look into all these different things when you're interviewing, and I think if we could give you maybe two pieces of advice that are the most important, it would be um, play your game, not theirs, right, as much as you can, um, and also basically interview them as carefully and, and scrutinize them as much as you can, as much as they're scrutinizing you, scrutinize, scrutinize them right back, because like we've been saying you know, this whole time in previous episodes and now, Interviewing is as much a a process where you are learning whether you want to work for this company as much as they are learning whether they want you to work there. So I think it actually can give you, I found, if I feel a little, I don't know, not a, a little um, a little down about, oh, I feel like I'm kind of getting bombarded with these questions and I feel kind of, I feel small, right? I feel like they've hit me with a whole bunch of things and, and now I feel... Like it's not an even playing field anymore. I actually find that when I flip around and I say, okay, here's my questions and I start grilling them with stuff. And especially if they don't know the answers to some of these things because they're just not expecting to, to, to you know, to answer those questions. Um, it definitely gives me quite a, de- a decent little boost in confidence that like, yeah, now we're back. We're back on more of an e- equal footing now. Um, and I feel like it's more of a negotiation and a conversation than it is just sort of that, like I said, that that uh, police interrogation with that bright light in your face. Right. I have such a vivid visual of you in that situation now. <laughs> it's within a Simpsons episode, but still. 
I think a lot of the questions that we ask during interviews, uh, I know for me, those are the result of um, previous experiences, right? And mm -hmm. I'm basically asking, yeah. how can I find out that you're not like this other place over there? And that's something that people who are interviewing for their first or second job are, are probably not going to have. So I would love to hear some of your specific questions that you have directed at the other side of the table. Right. Well, you 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 ask, and I just happen to have my iPad All right, right here. So I will pull it up, and we can we can go through a couple of them. So this list that I've created is um, I cannot take credit for it. Really, uh, it is actually kind of an amalgamation of all kinds of different questions that I've pulled from um, from the internet. Um, so you can look up. I can post my list, um, but you can look up uh, these kinds of things. You know, typical interview questions to ask of the company, not, not questions that you will be asked, but questions that you can ask them. Um, and so, uh, it, it's just, a, it's just a, it's quite a big list. Um, and I don't ever ask all of these questions, uh, in one interview, that would be insane. It would take forever to get through them. Um, so I kind of, when I get into the interview and of course I just lost it, I get, when I get into the interview, I, um, what happened here? There we go. Um, when I, yeah. <laughs> so when I get into the interview and I kind of go through it, I um, basically kind of gauge how it's going to go and uh, and what I'm likely to get answers to anyway, that kind of thing. And of course, if if in the co course of conversation they answer one of them, then I don't don't bother asking it because I've already got the answer for it. Um, but I have basically, if, if we look at it, I've got uh, broken down into several sections. So inter engineering. So these are all engineering related questions. Management, so that'd be if I'm talking to a team lead or a manager or the CEO or really anybody whose kind of primary focus is managing others. Um, quality of life, and these questions could be asked really of anyone. Um, and I kind of try to, to mix those up and ask different people in the hierarchy these questions because you might get more of a, you know, more of a kind of a PRE type answer from maybe a member of management if you ask a quality of life question, whereas if you ask an engineer or someone that is kind of in the trenches, the same question, you might get more of a, you know, a real answer. Um, culture and community involvement, uh, interviewing. Um, so that's a, those are kind of meta questions. And then the last one is career development and personal growth. And there's probably, I'm just looking at it, there's probably 60, 80 questions on this list. And again, I do not ask all of them. What's, give us a, a favorite question per category. All right. Um, so uh, one of my, probably one of my, two kind of my favorite ones on the engineering side are, what is your version control system? Explain it to me how, how it works. And that includes kind of how you do builds. Um, and then, um, the other one is probably, probably describe your, so this question is describe your deployment process. How do you find bugs in your team's code? What recourse do you have when a serious bug is found in production? Um, who's responsible for doing a deployment and how often do you deploy? So all around, particularly for iOS, that process can be quite convoluted. Um, so the more streamlined that is, the better. Um, and those questions that I, that kind of list of little bit of questions all are kind of getting, getting to the point of how difficult is it for you to build your product and deploy it to the world? Um, and if your answer involves lots of really complicated, convoluted things, like we got to go talk to Larry and he's only here every third day. And <laughs> like, you know, like it's this really strange process. It's like, okay, well, so you don't care enough about your product to actually make that easy. That's potentially a red flag. Um, and also if it's really complicated and maybe 
you know, very manual, you don't care about the quality of life of your engineers because you're having us spend a whole bunch of time working on deployment when we could be working on actually building features. Um, so these are all, all the questions really are just getting down to how much does the company care about its product, its its employee, its employees, its customers? Um, where is it putting its efforts? Um, so that's, that's for engineering. Uh, management, I like to ask things like, um, what kind of communication tools do you use? Uh, because that's usually a big thing. Uh, how, and how do you communicate, right? Is it email? Is it instant message? Is it you come into my cube and yell at me? <laughs> how, how does that, how does that work? How does information get conveyed, you know, up the chain, down the chain, between chains, um, to different departments? Uh, because, you know, as we are well aware in the jobs that we've been in, there's good communication, there's bad communication, Every company kind of struggles with that, um, but uh, you know, learning a little bit about that would be helpful because if it's particularly bad, again, that could be a red flag. Um, so, quality of life. Uh, let's see, um, things like working from home, core hours, flex time, that kind of stuff. You know, how do you structure your day? Great questions. Yeah. How important is it for someone's butt to be in the seat in the office, right? Like, it really isn't that important, I think. Um, and, and increasingly, that's becoming truer and truer. But some companies are just really f- sort of fussy about wanting their people to be in a particular place. Um, so kind of how fussy are they about that kind of stuff? And for me, as an iOS developer, I've ended up on situation, in situations where I am frequently what I call an island of one, meaning I'm basically the only person at the company that does that work. Um, so how many other iOS developers are on staff? That's something that I want to know if it's not obvious in the interview. Um, and, and if it is true that I'm only one person, what team am I on and who do I report to and how does that work? And does someone else know in the company anything about iOS so that I can talk apples to apples to them? Because if that's not the case, again, can be kind of a red flag. Because that puts you in a very difficult situation for uh, professional advancement, right? Because you don't have anyone who can really evaluate the the technical quality of your work, right? And I've ended up in a couple of different positions where I've you know I've gone in and I've done work and I think I've done good work, and then my work kind of gets I wouldn't say it just kind of gets ignored, kind of because like you said, they don't know how to assess it, so they they're like uh, I guess it's good you, we have apps in the store we, our review our review average isn't that bad. Great, but like they just they they can't really do a good job of assessing it. So you end up in a scenario where you're like, well, this is the position that you're in, and this is where you'll be for the foreseeable future because there's nowhere for you to go. Right. Um, culture and community involvement. So things like uh, are employees encouraged to go to speak at conferences? Right. Professional development of your employees is important, um, and not only does that give the you know the employee the opportunity to grow and become more well known in the community, but it also if you stick your name on those things, right, it gives you the opportunity as the company to grow and and reach new audiences and stuff like that. So it isn't just the case that paying a thousand bucks to send someone to a conference is is only benefiting that person. It's also benefiting if you work with them and, and you make it more of a, they're representing us as a company at this thing. It can be very beneficial to you as a company as well. So do you think about those things and do you, do you, you know, allow it? Um, uh, I'm a, I run a local meetup. So questions like, do you support local meetups? Do you have hackathons or teaching opportunities? Do you sponsor any meetups? You know, do you, would you, are you, or would you like to host a meetup in your space? That kind of thing, because it brings 
community into your company, um, which can be good. And if you go the other way where you maybe sponsor one, um, it makes people aware in the community that you exist and that you're, you know, sort of a, a good citizen within that industry. Um, this one I really like uh, because it kind of forces them to give um, some concrete feedback on me. So it's what about my background or resume or GitHub profile or any of the sort of the things that you've looked at before I came in? Um, what about those things caused you to be interested in me? Like what? Oh, that's what, terrific. What was it about my sort of digital presence that made you think, oh, we should not just this resume in the trash but we should actually get this person <laughs> for an interview um, because for one thing it it's uh hopefully you can get some you know some positive feedback from them which is always good to hear um but in particular it helps you understand what it was about your marketing basically all that stuff is all personal marketing what about that marketing worked Right, yeah. which you can then emphasize further. You know, you can go in and tweak those things and make those things even more prominent, or add more content there, or whatever to to strengthen that portion, so that when you you know when you're in a situation where you need to use it again, it hopefully will work even better. Um, and then the last one is career development and personal growth, and these actually have some um, some junior focused questions in here, so I'll, I'll go through just a couple of them. Um, what sorts of things do you do as a company to ensure high quality code and continued learning? Something that's really important is whether you're a junior, a mid or a senior is having opportunities to continue to learn um, and having the company give you concrete ways to do that is a good thing. Um, how is performance evaluated, code reviews, weekly one-on-ones, regular feedback, yearly reviews? Unfortunately, that kind of thing is has definitely fallen by the wayside. Um, and a lot of companies just do nothing with yeah. that. They don't give you any feedback at all, um, which is no good. Uh, so hopefully pressing on those kinds of things in the interview can make them think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this one is huge. I, because I, even though I'm a senior, because I am, you know, I have a soft spot for juniors and I've taught them and really enjoy mentoring juniors. I always ask, um, do you have a formal mentorship program or how do you handle training new developers? Um, because that's something that I think is crucial to our industry. You know, we're not going to get new, qualified, talented senior developers if we don't actually train new ones. <laughs> so has the company ever thought of that? And do they have a process for how to train new developers? And if their answer is either we don't hire juniors or we hire them and then we just expect them to do the work of a senior <laughs> for less money. Uh, again, red flags, right? These are all designed basically to hopefully get good answers from. And if, if I don't get good answers from these questions, then they're all simply just red flags for me to incorporate into my decision-making process about whether I want to work there. That's a great list. I Number one, it's great to have some handful of questions to put you in the frame of mind, like, like you said, of you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And I think that the specific information that you'll get out of those is is really valuable. A couple I like to throw in are uh, to ask people, what are the best and the worst features of working here? Mm-hmm. And something that is um, more important to me than it would be to you as an iOS developer, um, is there a company-provided computer or do I use my own? And if it's company-provided, is it mac or pc <laughs> right yeah for me it's kind of a, a foregone conclusion that i'm going to use a mac because you need one in order to do ios but uh, yeah that's that's actually that's a really good question is is the more generic like 
what does the equipment look like? Do I get to use my own or are you going to give me one? And then if you give me one, what does it look like? Because that's that can that can drastically affect your day-to-day Boy, just does it. happiness. <laughs> <laughs> so if they're using the thing that you don't like using, then again, red flag. If you are giving me one, how much control will I have as a mere user <laughs> yes, over yes. what software can be installed upon it? Yes. These questions reflect deep and recent scars. <laughs> How many triplicate forms do I have to fill out to install Slack? <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right, yeah. That again, these I mean we we joke, but these are all important questions around your day-to-day happiness at that company. So, don't don't feel like a question that you're going to ask is too small or too specific or too inconsequential um because if it's important to you, then it's important to your job, and yeah. and you, and they need to be able to provide a satisfactory answer. Um, and asking these questions is, can be really fun because, as much as I'm sure, uh, you know, it it can be frustrating to kind of squirm under the lights of their questions. On more than one occasion, questions that I've you know listed here and that I've asked, I've seen them squirm right back. Like, oh, we weren't prepared to answer that question. Now we feel really <laughs> you know self conscious about it, and we oh let me go find out for you. And like and and suddenly you just feel like yeah we're back in we're we're just back in more of an equal footing, and it it can give you a huge boost of confidence um, and help you feel just you know more equal which which like we've been saying will make you perform better if you feel more equal in the process you will then do better you will feel a little less you know just kind of uh frozen a supplicant yeah right you'll feel more like i got this i know things <laughs> i can i can i can do this work um i at and... least know as much as those characters do <laughs> right exactly look at this guy he's he's totally squirming under the under this simple question i asked him um so yeah, it can, do, it can do wonders to really kind of level that back out. All right. I think that's a, a good set of practices to keep in mind for the interviewee side of the table. Uh, we'll continue with this series, I think, next week with uh, negotiating when you feel like you might not have leverage. Right. Yeah. So that's a whole nother process. You finish the interview. Maybe you feel pretty good about it. You wait a few days, a few weeks, and you get... Um, the beginnings of perhaps a job offer, uh, and unfortunately, your job is not done at that point. You have to continue to fight um, and and try and get kind of the best deal that you can. Um, and in particular, if you're a junior and you're starting, a, you know, maybe your first job, uh, that can be that can feel particularly daunting. So we're going to give you hopefully some advice on how to negotiate that. So that'll come up next time. And in the meantime, Ben, if listeners would like to learn more about us, uh, where can they go? What can they do? So if you want to learn basically everything there is to know about the podcast, just go to mvc.fm. That's our website. Um, and you can uh, listen online. We have players for every episode built right in. You can get to the show notes. The links that we include um, that we talk about in the episode are included in the show notes. Um, and then most importantly, if you would like to subscribe, there's a page right there with all the links that you need to subscribe basically on every uh, modern popular platform for podcasting. So just check us out at mvc.fm. Also, if you want to kind of learn more about uh, updates and things that we're we're doing, we announce new episodes, stuff like that, go to, uh, on Twitter, go to at MVC Podcast, um, and you can tweet at us. You have feedback um, and talk to us there. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.